0: Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this next podcast episode with Maria Nikolkova. I want to let you know, we actually recorded this this winter, well before COVID broke out, in case you're wondering about the context. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Y Honors Community Podcast. Today, we are visiting with Maria Nikolkova. Hi, Maria.
1: Hello, Aaron.
0: Good to see you.
1: You too. It's so nice to be here.
0: It's great. We have this opportunity to speak with you, and I'm really excited about what we'll be talking about today.
1: Yeah, we have uh, quite a bit to cover.
0: (laughs) Indeed. So I'll let our audience know that uh, Maria Nikolkova started working in the molecular biology field at the Miller Lab at the University of Colorado Denver as an undergraduate student, receiving a competitive undergraduate research opportunity program grant to support her work. And after earning her Bachelor of Science in Biology in 2018 from CU Denver, She started in the CU Denver Biology Master of Science program in the fall. Currently, she is working on assembly, annotation, and interpretation of novel archaeal genomes from freshwater wetlands in the Miller Lab, alongside collaborators in the Wrighton Lab at Colorado State University. So, uh, And Maria is also teaching at the University of Colorado, both uh, undergraduate and graduate students. And Maria, it's so cool to have this opportunity to talk with you a bit. Today, we're going to be covering some science. Yeah,
1: we're going to break down all that jargon you just mentioned in that last little bit. It was great. Excellent.
0: (laughs) So where where should we start?
1: Um, We can just start right with the wetlands. Great. Right with the archaeal diversity. Um, That last sentence, usually people's eyes kind of glaze over and they're kind of like, what do you do? I thought you were in biology. What's with all this other mumbo jumbo? Um, So generally what I do right now is I do a lot of bioinformatics work, so that's a lot of computer work. Uh, I like to make the joke that I don't poke and prod squishy things even though I'm a biologist. I do a lot of uh, computational work, a lot of coding. I see that black screen with the green font from the matrix much more often than I see Dead frogs. Okay. <laughs> Let's okay. put it that way. Yeah.
0: That paints <laughs> a picture.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, a lot of the, so the archaea, so they're a type of organism, a microorganism that actually historically was always grouped together with bacteria. Hmm. They're usually single celled microorganisms. And they're actually their own domain. So, if uh, going back to kind of that basic biology, we have three domains. We have eukaryotes, which is our cells, plant cells, all those fun, squishy, furry, slimy things, are eukaryotic cells. Mm. And then we have bacteria, which unfortunately, we usually hear in the negative term, you know, all those E. coli and all those bad, scary microbes that um, get a bad reputation, but are kind of all around us. Mm. And then we have archaea. So evolutionarily, they were always put together until about the 1970s, when a scientist called Carl Wohs made that really a phenomenal paper, and he made that distinction, showing evolutionarily that really archaea are different from bacteria, and from then on we've been going forward at what I'd say is quite a fast pace, and then within the last, really the field I'm in, um, got going, much more quickly within the 2000s, right, with the big technology boom, Mm. because a lot of archaea, they can't be grown in a lab. So Mm. a lot of bacteria you can grow in a lab. You can see it on a petri dish. You can see it in a microscope. You can't grow archaea. They're so specific to their environment. They're so odd compared to even different kinds of bacteria, but they're fascinating. They have these crazy metabolisms, sometimes um, some of the ones that I'm looking at, they potentially have hosts Hmm. and we just don't know anything about them. But there's this giant biodiversity of things that we just don't know about Hmm. and it boggles my mind. So that's what I do.
0: (laughs) One one of the things that I I find absolutely astounding as a non-technical person, uh understanding more and more uh. the importance of the microbiome and soil in our own bodies mm-hmm. um there, there's really this explosion of uh knowledge and understanding just in the last few decades and yet we still hardly understand these complex critters and systems that ultimately are uh essential to the fabric of life on the planet right right
1: so what's interesting especially uh, about archaea, and just generally, is that the studies that started with them were actually in these extreme environments. So, that's mm. one of the first kinds of archaea we see are these extremophiles, as people like to call them. So, mm. they live in super salty environments or in deep, deep ocean, um, in places with lots of sulfur, and hot places like Yellowstone. And then, not, and for quite a bit. We thought, oh, okay, they're just these extreme organisms that live in these extreme environments. But um, back to what you were mentioning is that the work we do is in wetlands. The, that's not an extreme environment uh, in any sense of the word. It's not super moist. It's not super dry. Hmm. It's just kind of a meh environment. You know, it's hmm. not super salty. It's usually pretty temperate. Um, so the wetland we're, we work in is a temperate wetland, so there is no salt. Um, it's same type of plant cover, you know, there's not really particularly anything special about it. Hmm. But we see this mass diversity. So uh, just even with that, uh, how we say, you know, like that sequencing boom, that DNA sequencing boom, has really allowed us to go further than just these extreme environments. and get more into depth into environments we never thought would even have this kind of diversity. And even that is still being uncovered. So specifically, um at least for the small amount of archaea that I'm looking at, hmm. I'm looking at a phylum level. A phylum level is the next down from domain. So that's, you know, um people like, oh what do you do? What what is this? Like we well, have to even know what an elephant is to start describing it, right? Hmm. And so there's these elephants in wetlands that we can't describe. We don't even know what they are. Hmm. How do you describe an elephant to someone when they don't even have the concept of an elephant?
0: Right. Okay. So this is interesting. So we're talking about phylum. I I remember this King Philip Mm -hmm. something or other from school. and we're saying, are, are these domains the same as like kingdoms that we were taught about or is that a little bit different?
1: Oh uh, yeah, so you'll have your kingdom and domain. So those are the three main kingdoms or three main okay. domains. Um, and then after that you get Phylum and then your King Philip, uh, what is it? I think I know which one you're talking what about. What was it? Yeah, I don't even remember uh, King Philip came over for good spaghetti, is that it? Yeah, seven. So you have your <laughs> seven taxonomic taxonomy levels. Okay. Um, and that fun little bit. And a lot of microbial research actually focuses on those bottom two, that uh, good spaghetti, the genus okay. and species. Yeah. So um, a common one, E. coli. E, genus, coli, species. Yeah. Archaea, a lot of it we don't know down to the genus uh, and species. We're, we have domain, so we have archaea, and then the one right after it, phylum. We don't even know genus and species. We barely, we can't even classify most of the things uh, that at least I'm looking at down mm-hmm. to a class level, which is a major grouping. It's, it's almost like saying all mushrooms.
0: Wow, right. That, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, because yeah. it's so diverse. So what, what, does, what does Archaea matter what does it have to do with our day-to-day lives and and how is it potentially important with to some of these major systemic challenges we're facing as a global society whether it's pollution or climate change or what have you like how does it all kind of connect up to these issues that most of us would be familiar with
1: um so a big part of that connection is going to be soil right Uh soil is going to connect all of us whether you like it or not you interact with soil daily Mm -hmm. even if you walk on concrete if you only walk on concrete that's a derivative of soil you're walking on soil or that concrete has interacted with the soil it's interacted with that microbial community that's in that soil everyone on earth even if you live in a submarine is interacting with soil because what's underneath that water soil Hmm. (laughs) so that's going to be my mainframe is that soil bit and where that connection comes in is that each soil environment, how you mentioned um, that like gut microbiome, yeah. each soil environment has its own microbiome in a sense. Mm-hmm. It has its own microbial communities, it has its own microbial niches. So it's just, in a sense, it's like a rainforest, mm-hmm. right? You can't just take a single tree of a rainforest and say, oh, I now I understand the rainforest because I understand this single right. orchid that lives in this single tree, mm-hmm. and I can understand the whole micro, you know, mm-hmm. the whole ecosystem of the rainforest microbial communities are just as complex, if not more complex, with their metabolisms because microbes do things like nitrogen cycling that we rely on, mm-hmm. and they're some of the only ones that can you know, um, convert, let's say, elemental forms of nitrogen to something that we can use. So we like to use, in eukaryotic cells and other types of organisms, we like to use usually um, ammonium that's a form of nitrogen. But atmospheric nitrogen, so uh, in general chemistry it's N with the subscript of 2, just that gaseous form of nitrogen, we can't do anything with that. So even if there was an abundance and there is an abundance of all this nitrogen, we can't do anything with it. Mm. It's not ammonium, it's not in a form that we can use. Mm -hmm. And microbes can use that and they can convert it to these different forms of nitrogen and nitrate and nitrite and all these other, you know, ending um, products that other kinds of cells can use. Mm -hmm. And so where I'm going to kind of more dive deep into the uh, why wetlands and all that. So temperate freshwater wetlands are actually the largest source of naturally emitting methane. Right. And Which
0: is a very powerful greenhouse gas, it's right? It's an versus?
1: unbelievably powerful greenhouse mm-hmm. gas that we usually don't associate with wetlands. It's A lot of the times it's associated with production and everything. And the thing is, when uh, we make models mm-hmm. for, let's say, methane emission, we need to account for that natural methane as well yes we have that industrial methane but we also have that natural methane Mm -hmm. and to create an accurate model so we can actually create accurate mathematical models and then create potentially plans on how to regulate it Mm -hmm. and potentially where we can build and what we can be around in that regard we need that accurate information and a lot of that methane is coming from microbes Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: and then What's diving deeper down is that biodiversity aspect, is we're losing a lot of biodiversity and we hear that every day, but we hear that in what I think is a grander scheme of things is Mm -hmm. that we hear them about larger organisms, so we hear frogs, we hear mushrooms, we hear all these sad things, but in that regard, microbes are being lost just Mm -hmm. as quickly, Mm -hmm. but we don't know about it. We don't know about many of the species that we're losing, that we can see without a microscope. It's hard to make people care about something. Not only can you not even see it under a microscope, you can only see it in your computer. Yeah. With DNA sequencing. Yeah. So that's kind of the larger funneled pictures going from soil that affects us all, all the way down to these microbes that have actually enormous potential for all of our methane cycling, our nitrogen cycling, our carbon cycling, really all those big, big words when we talk about environments and when Mm -hmm. we talk about uh, methane emission and carbon emission and all these issues that we're having. Yes. They're all interlaced with microbes.
0: So I'm I'm so curious because with the Why on Earth community, you know, one of the things we've done a lot with strategically is helping people connect the dots, both mentally and viscerally, to the so- with the soil and talk about the soil microbiome and how important it is, but we can't see it. And one of the things that boggles my mind is this issue of orders of magnitude and, and size differences. And do you have any way of, of helping to explain like how small some of these organisms actually are? Is, is there a way to paint that picture for people?
1: I would say to some of the smaller microbes, which like I said, we can't grow and everything, it'd almost be like the difference between the tip of a pin and the size of all of Earth.
0: That's astounding. That's
1: boggling, right? Yes. Like it's not even the difference between a baseball and a basketball. It's right. Right. That that can be that much of a difference.
0: That's really incredible and what I I remember hearing that just blew my mind uh, and it may have been more with the uh, bacteria side of things but that within the microbiome there are organisms that are thousands of times larger than other organisms all of which are invisible to our eyes right so there's this this whole like universe of living critters that we cannot see without the aid of technology right?
1: Yeah so that is a lot of what, what we've been able to do, too, is with that sequencing. Um, so a lot of those critters, I really like that word and enjoy that. Um, so a lot of the critters that you mentioned, even if, let's say they're big or small, some of them just, you can't even grow. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter, if, even if it's a big, if it's something big that we could see under a microscope, mm. maybe it doesn't want to grow in a lab. Like, <laughs> we can't grow it in a lab. And so that's where that issue comes in with um, trying to determine also, let's say, the biodiversity of your gut uh-huh. or the biodiversity of... Um, everything has a biodiversity, right? So like the microbiome of your inner elbow is going to be different than the microbiome of the top of your hand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So just because of the, that difference, right? So let's say like your inner elbow, it gets probably exposed less to air than the top of your hand. Mm-hmm. So already there's that difference in microbial composition. But if I were to take a swab, let's say, of my hand, and I was to dry and grow it on uh, a petri dish, like, and we call it like an all-media, so something that accounts for at least most of the nutrients. Again, that's going to be only conducive to organisms that can grow in a lab. So there might be organisms on there that I don't know what they're like just because they're not growing, because they don't have the proper conditions. And you'll never find a medium that's all medium, like we call it all medium, but it's not, it's not gonna encompass everything. So you have to make adjustments for that. So what sequencing, what that DNA sequencing has allowed us to do is kind of in environment is to, in a sense, take that swab and then from that environment, just sequence out all the DNA.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: And so you can get a better picture of something just because even if it's not growing, you might be able to see it in your computer. You're like, oh, that's weird. That's the, there's this chunk of DNA or this, <laughs> this a genome. So the, um, the genome is all the DNA that makes us up, in uh-huh. a sense, or that makes up our cells, makes up all cells. It's all that genetic code. And so you might see something you're like, oh, this doesn't relate to any of the other large critters that we have or that we've been able to grow. Mm. But they're here. So something is here.
0: How do you know if you're looking at uh, uh, genetic sequences, how do, you, how do you know that like this sequence over here belongs to some, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, archaea, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, versus it's part of a gene of a large organism. Like how, how do you even know what it is you're looking at and like how it, where it belongs in that organization of biology?
1: Um. A lot of the answer is gonna be we don't. Uh, so we have references for a lot of the sequencing started with things we did know. Mm-hmm. So we sequenced that. We're like, okay, we're pretty sure of this genome. Let's mm-hmm. say for E. coli. I like to use E. coli as an example because most people have at least if, if not negatively heard about it. Right. So we generally know the DNA sequence of E. coli. Mm-hmm. And so from there, you can kind of go, okay, so we have these other things that we've grown in the lab and we have the genetic sequence for those. And then we have something else that we don't know yet. Hmm. And you know, you just kind of put a question mark around it. Interesting. That's interesting. And so it is kind of a game of Tetris in that regard. Cool. So you're trying to piece it together and get that row. It's
0: like a massive puzzle. Huh?
1: It's a massive puzzle. <laughs> and the thing is, for especially archaeal research it's that tree so if you like um, like a phylogenetic tree so yeah. that tree that separates you know bacteria in one branch and uh, us in another branch and archaea in another branch and it's all kind of together those are changing hmm. but it's not a it's not a static structure so you know you might have A research paper that comes out and says, Oh, this archaea, um, I work with Enigma archaeota, so I'm just going to say that one. Yeah, (laughs) it's Enigma because we don't know anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Um, So it's a phylum, and let's say a paper comes out and says, It has to be within this branch and then this branch. So it gives it a set area Hmm. for it to be in. And then I sequence some things. I use some computational methods and some statistical models. And I look at their model and I say, I don't agree. Mm. I don't think it does belong here. I think, you know, it could be here or here. So everything is also for something like that you can't grow and something that you're not sure of. It's also based on statistics. Mm So some statistical models are going to be more sure or less sure. So there's always a percentage associated with it, which I think scientists get a bad rap for because you'll never hear scientists say, I'm a hundred percent sure right. that this is the truth. The R
0: like, squared problem basically. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, so I think that also is a big part of it is that how How much do you trust your statistical model and we run Mm -hmm. a lot of them you know Mm -hmm. we don't run just one and say yeah we're good to go let's let's head on out and publish this paper Um, we run quite a few and then whatever statistical model best suits uh, that tree Mm -hmm. is what we'll take into consideration again it's not. It might not be publishable yet. It might not. I think. But we're taking it into consideration. Hmm. So there's a lot of stepwise process that comes between us making something in the lab or us doing something in the lab, and it going out into a published research paper. So there's quite a few steps in between there, um, and there's also reviews and peer reviews and there's quite a few steps that. Uh, try to account for those errors
0: interesting yeah it sounds like it's a very sophisticated and, and well-defined process r- regarding things that are very difficult to understand things that a few decades ago we hardly even knew existed mm-hmm. and here they are absolutely affecting our lives as human beings on the planet dealing with these issues that we're dealing with right and to continue to tie this discussion back I'm i'm so struck by Um, In our culture, there there can be this incredible gap between folks who work in the sciences and or have friends who work in the sciences Mm -hmm. and at least have some appreciation for those procedures and how that body of knowledge is developed. And then there are a lot of us who don't have any familiarity with science and, and perhaps moreover had a negative experience back in mm-hmm. you know ninth grade or whatever and, and and it's not a comfortable territory and i think it's really interesting to explore how do we how do we attempt to communicate from a highly technical incredibly mathematically based way of understanding knowledge to folks for whom those maybe aren't as as well developed or, or easily um, acquired as a, as a set of skills right and I'm, I'm struck that you use visualization a lot, and I, I want to make sure to ask you about that. But yeah, go ahead.
1: Um, just it's funny that you mentioned that high school example. Uh, in high school, one of my biology teachers said, I was uh, really worried about you in biology. I don't think you'll make it as a biologist. Oh, really? Maybe you should do something else. <laughs> <It's a> really? <laughs> yeah. That was an exact actual example. I was like, I'm going to show you. (laughs) I love that. So um, I definitely can see where people are coming from that because I have definitely had that experience Mm. where the teacher was like, Nope, um, I don't think you're going to do great in this field, or Mm. "Eh, maybe you should pursue something else. Yep. Have you tried the literary department? You know, kind (laughs) of like ooh, that was (laughs) a little rough. (laughs) Kind of yeah. So um, I think when you mentioned visualizations, that's why I like to use visualization so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much a visual person. I am in no way a computer person. Hmm. That is not me. Um, that is my big brother. He's He was always much more the computer person. Big and brother. Was, yeah, the big brother.
0: Big brother, Artem Nikolkov. He's here in the room with us <laughs> actually off camera. So this is a quick shout out. Yeah. What's up? Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's great.
1: But um, <laughs> You know, he was always kind of more the technical, more the com- computer mm. and everything, and uh, the person that you go to and you're like, my computer is broken,
2: yep. help me.
1: I was never in that. I was never in that real technical mindset. Mm. But there's something to be said that science is a lot of creativity too. Yeah. And which actually, that's one of the things I started to enjoy about science is that once I started to kind of get more into science and um, see some of these like interesting things that were just coming out of news articles,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. some of the best things that I learned were from visualizations, Mm -hmm. like a very well defined 3D model or something. Because I didn't, you know, I couldn't dredge through that three and a half paragraphs of equations or formulas or it just made my eyes cross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, I, did I need to do something else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's part of um, what I like to do in terms of visualization is, and trying to come up with metaphors that sometimes work, sometimes don't, for trying to imagine these things that mm-hmm. are... How do you imagine something you don't know how to imagine?
0: That's such an <laughs> interesting question. It's almost like a koan.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and I, I, I know from our previous conversations that um, in addition to all the work you're doing in biology and with science and with computer modeling, uh, you're also a, an artist and, and a drawer. And according to Artem, we'll let Artem say it. I want to speak for him. An incredibly gifted and talented artiste yeah. In the true sense of the word.
1: Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the vote of confidence. Um, I don't know, I think it's a good, well-rounded way to get away from those statistics, mm-hmm. from those computers. And to do something that just seems odd, almost at times, even though drawing comes more naturally to me than computers. At this mm. point, I'm with computers so much mm-hmm. that it almost going back to drawing sometimes feels odd. I'm like, what am I, what, what I doing here? What? So but yeah. yeah. So it's that different mindset. And sometimes that kind of almost meditative drawing bit has helped me, you know, like, oh yeah, that's why my computer code didn't work. And then I'll like rush back to <laughs> my computer.
0: I love that. I love that. As a a writer, I've experienced that where if I'm painting or drawing or even sometimes cooking insights, it seems like certain thoughts will crystallize mm -hmm. and and it seems that having some balance in different activities probably helps us in our primary area Mm -hmm. of focus in ways perhaps that isn't uh, always obvious.
1: Yeah. Um, I always liked, I think it was that Roman model. Of like the perfect soldier, and hmm. where it was, it was a triangle, and the top of the triangle um, was like athleticism, and you know, like the physicality of it. Uh, one of one of the sides of the triangle was one of the points was like intellectualism and like reading and all that. And the other side was more of that creativity aspect. Hmm. And so that made almost like a perfect Roman soldier because he would be able to be creative and both athletic and intellectual. Hmm. And um, I don't know, I kind of liked that model too, is, you know, you can't, if you're too heavy on one side, you kind of start to tip over or you, or you get so narrow, narrowly into it that um, it's kind of hard to see all around you yeah so I've met some brilliant peoples and they were s- they were so smart mm. I mean just unbelievably smart with statistics and math and everything but it was just so narrow mm. and I'm like I just I need that extra conversation because i I like things outside of science yeah. yes I Right now, I consider myself a scientist, which is also still a little odd for me. <laughs> People ask, "What do you do?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm still a student scientist. I don't know what I do. I, I just exist in this, in this world of soil." Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> uh, having that more rounded aspect really helps. I think ground me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Well, let me uh, just take a moment to remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Community podcast. And today I am visiting with Maria Nicol Kolba, who is sister's, sister of Artem Nikolkov, who's also in the room here with us. And it's a great segue and opportunity to thank our uh, supporters uh, who include Earth Coast Productions, Artem's company, um, the Lidge Family Foundation, Patagonia. Uh, Purium and Waylay Waters. And also want to give a huge shout out to all of the folks who have joined our Why on Earth monthly giving program. And if you haven't yet joined and you'd like to, you can join at any level you want to. You just go to whyonearth.org support and uh, you can set that up uh, nice and easy and straightforward. And also want to let you know about a very special program we have with one of our social enterprise sponsors, Waylay Waters. Uh, if you want to join the monthly giving program at certain levels, $33, uh, $88, or $133, you'll get monthly shipments of the Wele Waters hemp-infused soaking salts. And you can find more information about that at uh, whyonearth.org slash Wele, that's W-E-L-E waters, water with an S at the end. Um, and thanks to everybody for your support uh, for making this podcast series possible and for supporting all of our community mobilization work for climate action, soil regeneration and cultural healing and uh, so excited about the projects we've got underway this year. And Maria, it's, it's such a joy to have the opportunity to sort of peek behind the curtain as to what's going on in the sciences right now around microbiome and what we know, what we don't know, what we know we don't know, and what we don't know we don't know, right? <laughs> I love that, that arrangement of uh, sort of our knowledge uh, structure. And I'm just wondering when you're working with wetlands and you're thinking about something like climate change, what's your sense? Like if you were to to speak to a university assembly of folks who can do things about climate change, how might wetlands play into this and what might we do differently as a society that would help us with this challenge? Mm
1: Um, so part of wetlands, what I think is fascinating is that we have a terrible history of dredging them up Yeah. because they're useless quote unquote, right? right?
2: Yeah.
1: Like I said, um, they're not an extremely hot environment. They're not an extremely cold environment. They're kind of easy to dredge up. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have all the possibilities to do so. Um, and we have for quite a bit of time, actually, if you think about, you know, New York or Seattle or everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of those places were either like um, ocean, and then as you go further in, it's wetland. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these cities have had to, you know, have these pumping systems and all these crazy mechanisms to basically <laughs> get rid of something that was already naturally there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love New York. Uh-huh. It's, a fun <laughs> um, place. Yeah, it's a fun place. <laughs> uh, my brother and I visited Seattle. Seattle was lovely.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't want to talk bad about the cities. It's just the history of what, what we've been kind of doing with wetlands. Mm. And what now is happening with wetlands is that we still kind of do that. Mm. You know, they don't get as much attention as some of the other, you know, big, beautiful, Parts of nature that we have, say Mm -hmm. our mountains, are uh, you know they're beautiful, they're snow capped, they're picturesque. Mm -hmm. Wetlands can be picturesque, but maybe not as much as a snow capped mountain uh, for a postcard. Yeah. So I think there's that aspect of biodiversity that not all important things are going to be the most beautiful things.
0: Yeah, that's such an important message.
1: So, uh, and wetlands, I think, really fall into that category. I think wetlands can be very beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's just sometimes uh, they kind of get fallen onto the wayside compared to some of the other things.
0: Oh, interesting. So it sounds like we should consider uh, further protecting the wetlands Mm -hmm. and perhaps even in some places doing what we can to restore what has been uh, drained or dredged or wh- whatever mm-hmm. has been. It's interesting because a lot of our historical development as a species has been, uh, at major, uh, river estuaries, right? We used mm-hmm. to do most of our travel and shipping by sea, by water. And it would make sense that we would have these major settlements at the mouths of rivers and right. so forth. But it turns out these are also where wetlands are mm-hmm. located, right?
1: Right. And I don't think, you know, completely getting rid of settlements from around there. All of this, ultimately, when we, when I think about at least climate change and all these um, people doing this wonderful work and everything, all of that I think has to culminate with us not drudging up and (laughs) concreting and Mm -hmm. paving the earth, right? Mm -hmm. You can pave parts, but leave some parts unpaved. Uh, it's all going to come to. I I want to say like an ecosystem where we have to have a certain harmony, as, as mm-hmm. almost cliche as that sounds right now, which is another thing I think is odd that you know the cliches. Some of them are there for a reason because right. <laughs> harmony is harmony. It's it's a yeah. wonderful world that we've been kind of overusing to mean certain different things. But um, yeah, I I think. Part of that, so how you mentioned that we used the mouths of rivers for transporting things. Yeah. I don't see why we can not leave that river there, we can still live around it, mm-hmm. we can still have big green spaces, we can have the natural wetland that's there. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, drudging up even like say a wetland and putting a park there, yeah just leave that wetland
0: there leave it as it is yeah oh that's really brilliant so i i want to make sure to hit on something um that you shared before we started recording that excites me because it's just so far beyond my uh technical expertise and it's this thing called crispr and I, i thought it would be fun just to share a little with the audience about um some of the highly technical stuff that you're engaged in and so can you Tell us, what's CRISPR, and, and you know, what does it stand right. for, and why yeah. is it important?
1: So uh, a lot of CRISPR has actually been in the news lately. A lot of it's actually getting some bad press. Hmm. Um, so it's the technology right now that we're using for gene editing. Um, the reason I brought it up is actually, so you, um, you mentioned that to your audience that I was uh, teaching or co-teaching right now a molecular app. And so we we used CRISPR technology in that molecular lab for gene editing. Um, so gene editing certain proteins into certain types of cells. So inserting a part of a genome or a part of a DNA sequence that encodes for a certain feature that was not previously in that cell. And so CRISPR, um, sometimes uh, or often called CRISPR-Cas9 because Cas9 is the protein associated with it, was actually first discovered um, in California, at the University of California, and it is a naturally occurring mechanism in bacteria hmm. that allows the bacteria to fight viruses. So it's like a snipping tool. So it can cut out certain parts of the DNA so that the bacteria is no longer affected by a virus. That viruses' DNA. Um, and what researchers brilliantly you know, figured out at the University of California is that these CRISPR systems, as they're often called, are highly conserved. So they're in more than just bacteria, mm-hmm. and they can be inserted into other organisms and other mm-hmm. types of cells. And so that's where there's a lot of bioethics and a lot of bioethics mm-hmm. committees, so yeah. um, I think the, the far the far-reaching kind of fear is that um, film Gattaca, right? If you've seen that where, you know, people are gene editing themselves and picking their children based on their eye color and all this science fiction. Um, Sometimes when, you know, when you hear it in the news, it's always kind of worst case scenario too. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we shouldn't think about worst case scenario because, right, you, you can't, we we're so infixed, even like in a science fiction culture, to always have this worst-case scenario of science mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible, I think, to have that um, mm. separate from real science as opposed to science fiction. But the reason I kind of brought that up is that it's actually something that's going on in you know molecular lab. This isn't specialists. This these aren't PhDs and postdocs and doctors and you know these people that. Have crazy qualifications, mm. way way above mine, and you know, are <laughs> mm. um, right, at these elite universities. This is happening in molecular labs. It's a it's a something that's accessible, which <laughs> I personally think is wonderful. Mm. Um, I I think science as a community in itself has been becoming more accepting, and trying to increase its diversity and. Um, I mean it still has a way to go every system has a way to go but ultimately when you can incorporate in a sense difficult concepts into teaching labs again you increase that accessibility to students Hmm. and that really is also kind of that bridge what you were saying uh, kind of that connection as well
0: absolutely Um, well and it's so great maria to have this opportunity to visit with you today and i think it's probably an opportunity for a lot of folks connected uh, through the y on earth community to hear some more from a scientist about uh, things that I imagine uh, a lot of us don't have direct experience or knowledge of. And uh, it's been a real joy and I want to thank you for visiting with us. And before we sign off for today, I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share about the work you're doing and or uh, to the y on earth community Mm -hmm. audience in general.
1: Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, really, I think my main message is that science is much more accessible than people mm-hmm. like to think it is. It's not, you know, white males and lab coats at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it is a diverse community, and it's actually one of the more accepting communities that I've luckily become a part of. Um, going to car- conferences, and I've met people from all around the world, and that's just been amazing. Um, but that opportunity only started because I was, you know, I was able to kind of show my curiosity in science. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the main thing: is that as soon as you show your curiosity, you know, you can reach out to scientists. They're not like the scientist as an entity. They're not a big brother sitting in a corner, right, <laughs> <laughs> um, watching over your podcast. <laughs> but they. There are people and um, they have websites. If you like a certain type of research, so mm. say you're really interested in what we've talked about today, go on a researcher's website. If you're really interested, I don't know, um, in giraffe research, there's researchers that focus their entire careers on giraffes, mm. which is, I think, fantastic. Um, but anything you're interested in, there's a researcher probably out there either doing it or looking for someone to help them do it. And I think reaching out, showing your curiosity, science has become much more inclusive, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually scientists are curious people, as far as as far as the ones I've <laughs> luckily like encountered. Um, and sure, maybe you'll have one guy that's like, no, I don't want to do this. Like, this, this, this is my giraffe research, I don't want anyone involved in it. And you're like, okay, you know what, there's someone else looking at this. Or, and so I think that accessibility, that science is accessible to everyone, is kind of that message that I want to put out there.
0: That's really wonderful, and I'll, I'll mention to the audience, in our show notes we'll have links uh, to a couple of the resources that you've shared. Uh, one is the Miller Lab Uh, where Maria does some of her work. And and if you go to um, microbial.systems, you can get to Miller Lab and the Wrighton Lab, which was also mentioned up at Colorado State University is at Wrightonlab.com, and that's Wrighton with a W. And uh, of course, in the show notes, we'll have the spelling for all of that and links for you. But um, Maria, and, and I hope we can also share a, an example of the visualization um, modeling that you do to, to give people a, a bit of a visual experience that they can check out and um, it's been such a joy talking with you Maria and my, I, 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 my mind's a little boggled just kind of with some <laughs> of these concepts and, and some of the amazing diversity and the things that are being discovered right now and worked with and uh, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. and I'll be back anytime you want. That sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Maria. Thank you.
3: The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth. All one word with a Y.